Thank God for vagrants and trespassers. Safe, normal, everyday bums and creeps. The gaunt-faced man stood at the end of the saw table, looking around as if not recognizing his surroundings. Littlefield had a chance to study him in profile now that he was relatively motionless. He had the drawn cheeks of a meth addict and looked like he'd missed a few turns at the soup kitchen. His dark brown hair ran just past his collar, and when he grimaced, there were black gaps between his yellow teeth. His clothes appeared to be natural fiber, dusty and stained, the cuffs of his shirt frayed. He wore a vest that was pocked with holes, and his gray cotton trousers had a rip in one knee. The leather boots were dusty and cracked, the heels coming loose, and the toe of the right one lolling open like the mouth of an exhausted hound. On his head was a peculiar cap that seemed two sizes too small, and looked as if it had been mashed lopsided. Since the man had not acknowledged Littlefield's challenge, the sheriff took three steps toward him and spoke again. "'This is private property.' "'Sure,' the man said, and it was almost like a question. "'You been drinking?' The encounter was moving back onto familiar footing, and Littlefield gained confidence. His right hand— which had reached to the butt of the pistol holstered on his belt, now relaxed. The man finally stared into the burning glare of the flashlight, not squinting or blinking. The eyes appeared to swell with darkness, and the light didn't glint off them, as if they were bone-dry and as dusty as his boots. "'Where the hell is Morton?' Littlefield was not just concerned about his deputy— He didn't like the idea of being alone with this weather-beaten scarecrow of a man. If it weren't for Sherry's dispatch record of the call, Littlefield would have been tempted to just mosey back through the gash in the fence and drive away. The lumberyard offered little satisfaction for vandalism, and as a decent sleeping quarters for Titusville's scattered homeless, it rivaled the Living Waters Mission's stiff steel cots. And, the sheriff reasoned, if the department made a precedent of rousting one wino, Sherry's 911 hotline might be flooded with reports of other emaciated and hollow-eyed wanderers. Rationalization. The same justifications that had led him to past mistakes. Some that ended with a shovel, flowers, and a preacher's solemn eulogy. The man repeated, turning and walking toward the back of the lot. "'Stop, or I'll—' Littlefield let the threat trail off because he didn't know exactly what to say. He certainly wasn't going to shoot, and he didn't think the suspect was making what could be called a high-speed attempt at escape. In fact, Littlefield wasn't even sure the man had heard or seen him. His reaction to the light might have been the instinctive response of a mindless animal. The man walked with the stiffness of a scarecrow, as if his limbs had been long unused. He moved between two dunes of decaying sawdust, clothes swathed against a skeletal frame. The man said, and then rolled the syllable into rain, as if learning a new language. The sound was as slow as everything else about the strange man, and Littlefield followed, slogging through the mix of wood chips and mud. That's when he noticed the man's boots left no prints. Stop!
Littlefield shouted, and now he wasn't even sure he wanted the man to stop, or if he'd simply fallen back on professional protocol when faced with the extraordinary. The gray scarecrow didn't heed if it had heard in the first place, and just kept flopping its broken boots toward the fence. Littlefield drew his gun and steadied the flashlight beam against the glock until the circle of light was centered on the man's back. The vagrant was carrying a haversack, slung low and dangling with old equipment. "'Strain!' the man said a little faster this time, as if a termite-riddled tongue had learned to speak. "'Train?' Littlefield's finger tickled the trigger, but he knew he wouldn't shoot. 